welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on books about place at ryanmurdoch.com. Today I'm speaking to John Gimlet. John is the author of five books, including At the Tomb of the Inflatable Pig and Wild Coast. One thing I really like about his work is that he writes about overlooked places, three little countries at the corner of the map in, in South America, or, or Paraguay, or Sri Lanka, or Newfoundland and Labrador. Those are the places I'm curious about, rather than the places that everybody goes. And he's one of the few people that goes out there, explores those places, and, and writes books about them. His new book, The Gardens of Mars, is all about the travels he, he did in Madagascar. It's an outstanding book, and I, I highly recommend it. Definitely be on the best books of the year list for me this year. So we spoke about Madagascar, Walking the Dead, and writing about places on the margins of the map. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this conversation. John Gimlet, welcome to Personal Landscapes. Hi. We're here to uh, talk about your your new or your most recent book, The Gardens of Mars. It's a beautifully produced book. I was quite surprised how, by how heavy it is, actually. It's, I mean, I don't mean metaphorically, but it's, it's, it's as though you've used depleted uranium in the pages or something. It's quite a dense book. It, it's a real doorstep, isn't it? I was a little bit worried that it was a bit too much, but the publishers thought it was uh, this was something that readers liked, beautiful illustrations and beautiful presentation. And you know, maybe for the hardback, that's right. Uh, but a much more uh, a, a lighter, more travel-friendly paperback is on its way. Okay, no, it's it's a beautifully produced book. I mean, the uh, the photos are really enjoyable to see. The maps are are very helpful, and maps to each section. I really appreciated that as well. But yeah, I was I was surprised by the uh, the overall weight. It's dense with ideas. I think <laughs> that's great. Yeah, the photographs were fun to take. I I came back from Madagascar with four thousand photographs, and I, I take all those pictures for a number of reasons. One is to help me remember for, for the writing. I refer to them uh, and also for the book. But there is a, a third thing that, you know, Madagascar is so weird that I almost feel that I need to peru- prove things forensically. <laughs> if, if, if I'm ever challenged, you know, people will say, that really happened. Did you really see that? So try and photograph as much as possible so that I can... You know, you know, meet any challenges on that score because, well, people do. Well, well given the, the uh, types of people you cross paths with, I mean, I can understand that you made the greatest uh, characters in your in all of your books, really. You have some sort of a, a, a pension for, for running into characters that seem like they're out of Conrad, you know, the, uh, the oddballs, the, the drunks, the smugglers. Is, are these to- types of people normally drawn to you? Is that a personality thing? It may be that, but you know, I think if you if you are traveling on the road and taking public transport and trying to engage with as many people as possible, then you really do meet people, the sort of people that I meet. You'd meet them in this country, in, in Britain, wherever. And you do. And and I have a, a belief that everybody in this world has something interesting to say. Uh the difficulty is trying to extract it from them. Uh but I but yeah, I, I do like finding people who have a different angle on, on things. And and if I feel I'm failing to get something interesting, perhaps, yeah, I move on and find someone who really is, uh, who really is interesting. But yeah, uh, that's these are the people I meet on the road. Now you certainly have a talent for finding good characters. Yeah, and it, 
Before I read your book, the sum total of my knowledge about Madagascar was, was three things, I think. I knew about uh, lemurs from a second year anthropology course on, you know, on primates. And I knew about the coelacanth from, from an old Volkswagen commercial from the 90s. And I knew the fact that it was settled from the east and not from, from Africa, which is, what, 400 kilometers away. That's quite astonishing. Maybe that's a good place to start. What, is, what do we know about the settlements? Yeah, Ron, you certainly knew perhaps more than I did when I first in, looked at Madagascar, sort of back in the uh, sort of mid-90s, I first thought about it. And I think you knew more than I did at that stage. It was a bit of a mystery. Animals certainly came to the fore. But what I what, what I became interested in was the people, actually, which is, seemed to me to be a bit of an untold story. And it's it's as remarkable as the animal story. But yes, you start in the East. Until now, what do we know about the settlement of the island? Okay, so the, the history is evolving very, very rapidly. Even during the course of my writing this book, new evidence, archaeological evidence, came to light to suggest that human settlement was actually as old as 10,000 years. And before that, people had thought that uh, mankind only arrived, or human beings only arrived on Madagascar in about the time of Christ. But actually, they now think it's about 8,000 BC. That's still pretty late in the day. Quite a few civilizations have come and gone by 8,000 8, uh, BC. So the first people come. Nobody knows quite where they came from, but they may have come may have been the same group as came later and successfully settled, namely Indonesians. And that's remarkable because the first successful settlers didn't come from Africa, which is only 270 miles away. They came from 3,700 miles away, the other side of the Indian Ocean in Borneo. And we know that because there is a congruency between the language of Madagascar and that of Borneo. I think there's a 85% congruency between Malagasy and the language of the Burrito Valley. That's remarkable. So it places Indonesians in, in Madagascar. But what's really strange about it is no one knows why they came, how they came, or exactly when they came. It remains an utter mystery. We can only conjecture as to how it all happened. It is, it's quite astonishing when you think about the distances. But on the one hand, the way they settled uh, the Pacific Islands and ended up at a, such a remote place as Easter Island lends some credence to their navigating abilities. But why would they think to go west instead of east? How would they find this place? Then again, the, the wreckage from that uh, Malaysian airliner that, uh, that went into the Indian Ocean somewhere washing up well, might suggest that the currents drift them that way. But yes, it's, it's quite a remarkable story. I, I found it amazing too, by the time they got their first permanent settlement cities. Cities were already being built in the Near East. Uh, writing had developed. Civilizations like the Minoans and the Mesopotamians were already in their decline. So if the Trojan War had real event, it's already happened. Agamemnon's come and gone. That's, that's really incredible to think about. Yeah. And to think of this enormous bit of real estate, the fourth largest island in the world, just completely uninhabited until that moment, uh, and therefore without humans, populated by these vast lumpen animals that were perfectly safe from predation. That all changed, of course, when humans came. But yeah, it, it, it's a remarkable idea that they came from Indonesia. Was it an accident? Is it a shipwreck that brought them? Or is it some design? Did they come in one voyage or multiple voyages? Did they come across the Indian Ocean? Or did they take a, a more land-based route via India, Oman, 
uh, Kenya. So are there any traces of such people along the way on a land route? There are some traces that Indonesians and Malays reach Madagascar, uh, reach Sri Lanka. I know that because my last book was about Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. But after that, the trail runs a bit cold. As far as I'm aware, there is no trace of Asian settlement along the East African Mozambique coast. So that r- tends to suggest that they didn't take that land route, that they did come across the Indian Ocean. But if they came across the Indian Ocean, Indian Ocean how did they miss Mauritius and how did they miss Reunion? Both of them remained uninhabited until the uh, until roughly the eighteen the early eighteen hundreds. What's astonishing that they that they've traced the language to a particular valley in Kalimantan, as you were saying. The culture, the cultural similarities, you know, the, the rice terracing, the ancestor worship, the Tarsiers and Lorises, the other primates in that loose group, also originate in Southeast Asia, kind of relatives of the lemur, primate relatives. There's so many convincing connections. Uh, and interesting, we have the Jesuits to thank for making that connection. As you know, the Jesuits were great travelers in the 17th century. And a Jesuit who happened to have been to uh, Java, Indonesia, made the connection between that and, and Malagasy. I mean, a, a remarkable bit of linguistics. And he was absolutely right. Uh, and he, even to this day, people recognize that linguistic connection. Anyway, it's fascinating. I also found it interesting that you mentioned uh, the Mazimba, sort of legends of, of little people inhabiting every dark corner and every lonely place, almost like the trolls in Scandinavia or something like this. These creatures that you should fear in the darkness that may take revenge on you. How, how this may be an ancestral memory of the island's earliest inhabitants. Yes, it may be. And the Vizimba themselves, who are the equivalent of the little people in Ireland and, and all cultures seem to have these sort of semi-mythical figures, uh, but they may simply have been the first wave of, of Indonesians and maybe a second wave of Indonesians, more sophisticated, overwhelmed them or interbred. We just don't know, really. But it seems that they, there was an earlier civilization before the current dominant strain of Indonesians. Yeah. And your descriptions of the landscape at times, especially the plains, it made me think of Australia, another place I haven't been to, but the red soil, the aridity, the bizarre flora and fauna. Um, sketch, sketch a picture of the landscape for us, if you could. Yeah, one uh, French geographer in the 19th century rather unfairly described Madagascar is having the colour and consistency of a brick. <laughs> well, it's much more than that. I know what he meant. Uh, th- the best place to see Madagascar is, of course, from the air. And if you're going there, I recommend that you do make as many internal flights as possible because you begin to realise the scale of the place. It, it is enormous, a thousand miles from end to end. You begin to realise the colour, these gorgeous reds, the dryness of the South and the West. Uh, In the South in particular, no rivers survive all year round. They completely dry up. And even throughout other dry zones of Madagascar, you'll see these fantastic gully systems and gallery forests and so on. Uh, But equally, as the land rises towards the east and the great escarpment that runs all the way along the East Coast, uh, you come into tropical forest, rainforest, And it's very, very wet. In some areas, you can expect 15 inches of rain in an hour in the right season. So it's an extremely varied landscape as well. Very rich in 
in sights and sounds and so on. So that there isn't a typical Malagasy scene, given that there's parts are flat, parts are mountainous, parts wet, part dry, that uh, it'll be full of surprises wherever you are. Is, is the um, landscape uh, a threat to you as well, or the, um, the fauna a threat to you as well, the flora? is the, I mean, like in the sense that it, most things in Australia are at the sting, bite, or, or stab you in some way? Actually, Malagasy flora and fauna is surprisingly gentle, really. There are no um, wild animals, apart from the Nile crocodile, that are bigger than 25 pounds or so, or maybe 25 kilos. But um, you get the idea. They're, broadly speaking, pretty small, the animals there. Um, Didn't you describe quite an enormous centipede in your book somewhere? Or a, a, vicious, a vicious millipede type creature? That's... Yeah, but probably not, harm, probably not very harmful. I don't know. I projected that in my imagination, the size of a cat. Like William Burroughs would disagree with your assessment of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, probably um, not terribly harmful. There are scorpions there. There are no poisonous snakes in Madagascar at all. The most dangerous snake is the boa constrictor, and that's unlikely to do you any great harm. There are some quite dangerous plants there. It, there's um, a plant in the south that has this milky sap, which, if it gets in your eye, would uh, be very harmful and there are plenty of other poisonous uh, plants around but every country has their poisonous uh, plants so in the main the uh, flora and fauna is pretty gentle on humankind uh, it's very prickly of course uh, most of the south is covered in in raquetta cactus but that's life-giving as well as as prickly uh, cattle simply wouldn't survive without it so yeah um, your biggest danger in, in, in Madagascar is probably lawlessness and probably uh, your fellow human beings, I'm afraid. Well, the other, the other aspect of the, the landscape that stood out for me is that it's absolutely riddled with ghosts. It is, yes. I mean, uh, Madagascar culture is, is, is very much ghost-based and this, this belief that the ancestors, your ancestors, are there and watching at every turn. And... Uh, you have to make it to the family tomb, otherwise you will wander the landscape forever as one of these lost spirits. And Malagasy's all know of places, particularly caves, hilltops and so on, where these lost souls congregate. And you really want to avoid becoming one of them by not getting to the family tomb at the end of your life. Yeah, that was something that uh, I recall from the book quite strongly, to be banished from the tomb was a punishment worse than death. And uh, I think if somebody had told you, never ask, never ask someone where they're from, the, the real question is, where's your family tomb? Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's what really matters. The Malagasy's have a, a, a lovely expression for this, that they say a house is a voyage, a tomb is forever. And what they mean by that is they, they're really surprised by the way people outside Madagascar put so much store by their house and decorate it and spend a fortune on their house. And they think, well, what's the point in that? It's just for your life. Your tomb is what really matters. That's where you're going to be for eternity. And many Malagasy's will bankrupt their estate, as it were, by, by building these elaborate tombs and having huge funerals and so on, because that's what matters. You, you pass through the portal of your tomb into the afterlife. 
So it's really worth investing in that. And they are mystified by the way we invest so much in transitory homes. So is the tomb elaborate on the inside as well as the out? The tombs vary enormously according to what tribe you are. It's important to emphasize that there are a number of tribes. The French colonial authorities uh, defined 18 different tribes, but it would be possible to define many more than that. It's a rather arbitrary figure. But at any rate, the practices vary from tribe to tribe. So some tribes, and the dominant tribe perhaps is the mariner, the tombs are relatively uh, lacking in ornamentation. They tend to be made of brick or concrete, painted white, frosted glass windows, steel door to go in it. You know, it looks like a little little flat roof bungalow, if you like, not particularly elaborate. And then inside there'll be shelves with uh, however many ancestors uh, the deceased are stored in there. Go further south and you'll come across enormous uh, tombs created uh, by the by the tribes down there with, with a huge sort of footprint. And they're decorated with perhaps hundreds of horns of cattle. And they're painted with scenes from movies or perhaps uh, pictures of policemen or decorated with battleships, all sorts of things that... Um, uh, uh, appeal to the sensibilities of that tribe. So is it imagery related to the person's life or just random things they like? It might be. So if he was a police officer, the tomb may be decorated with very colourful pictures of uh, police officers in their French uniforms, carrying Kalashnikovs, that sort of thing. But equally, they may not be. They may, they may simply be a scene that inspires that person and something they aspire to. And a favourite theme for tomb art in the in the south is um, scenes from Titanic. Uh, so you'll often see pictures there or you'll see pictures from paintings from Bruce Lee films. Bruce Lee is a real inspiration down there or the Terminator. He often appears on people's tombs in his dark glasses with his guns and so on. And these, are, I think these are really aspirational. You know, this is this is how we we would like to see ourselves. And, uh, you know, look at us. It's, look at this tomb. Aren't we amazing? It's something you'd really want to think through pretty clearly, though, right? Like, I could, it's a bit like a tattoo. That could make for a regrettable eternity if you, if you painted Tom Cruise or something on the inside of your tomb. <laughs> I, guess it, I, I guess it could. Um, it's, it's funny, the, the, although they're very proud of these, they, the, this tomb art, you're not really supposed to photograph it. I'm afraid I did photograph some of it rather rather insensitively perhaps but, but simply because I, I i did want to convey to people back here this is real and this really does happen but strictly speaking you shouldn't photograph it this is very very um holy um holy art as far as they're concerned despite its subject it's a it's a very strange combination really i found it so interesting too that the different um traditions associated with the ancestor worship like walking the dead in the highlands for example and in the south, um, not really visiting the tombs, if I remember right, but but not moving away from them either. Yeah, there's a common theme that it's all about ancestors and the and the afterlife, and it's all about graves. But the approach is, as you rightly say, slightly different. So in in around the capital, it's all about revisiting tombs, disinterring the bones, cleaning them, having a party with lots of drink and lots of food showing the bones around the village, showing granny and grandfather what's changed since they died. It's all very different in the South. Sometimes 
the tomb will never be visited again. And with the Barra people, the, the tombs are very high up in the cliffs and you wouldn't want to go there again because it's extremely dangerous getting there. And didn't you say the more important or prestigious the person was, the higher up they'd be, they'd be put on the cliffs as well? In Barra tombs, that may be the case, yeah. Right, and people would plunge to their deaths, to taking the bones. Absolutely. Yeah, so people will go to enormous lengths to get the bones, the cadaver, up to the these very high niches in the cliffs, and people will often be killed doing so. So you have a second funeral uh, for that the person who was <laughs> helping with the first. Do these burial practices, are they strictly tribal divisions, the differences between them, or the class divisions in, in terms of wealth as well? I mean, apart from the elaborateness? Yeah, I think more tribal, really. Uh, that you know, the Barra will have a way of doing things. The Mariner will have a way of doing things. The Sakalava another way of doing. Class is very important in 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 Madagascar uh, as well, though. Uh, essentially, there are three classes: an arist- aristocratic and a sort of ordinary or middle class, if you like. And then there's a class called Andiva, which literally means slave, and it's a hangover to to their their history, really. And, and it's a very sad history in that respect. Yeah, I found that quite interesting as well. You said um, uh, you mapped this onto geography, like in uh, Antananarivo, the, the, you have tiers of ever-diminishing gentility where the poor occupy the lower reaches and the, the higher up uh, you live, the more wealthy you are. Yeah, it's very strange, but right up on the top, that's where the bishops and the politicians and they are, and, and right down in the bottom are the homeless, the people who live on a euro a day, that sort of thing. <laughs> it's, it's very topographical, uh, a remarkable city. And it seemed as well from your descriptions that the lives of the poor were, were much more vibrant than, than the richer people you encountered. Like they seem to exist in sort of a, what well, you described it as a power safe mode where of, of sort of not being too sure what to do with themselves. A lot of idleness, whereas the poor had cockfighting, dominoes, you know, rugby. It, it seemed like much more, uh, much more in touch with life. I think that that's right. The, I think one of the problems for people higher up the tree is they think a lot about uh, behaving themselves in the afterlife. And they, they had Welsh Calvinism grafted on top of their uh, existing beliefs. And the combination of the two makes them extremely concerned about what the next life holds. So they, they do tend to behave themselves certainly in terms of uh, enjoying the simple pleasures of life, like drink and going out and so so on. The poor perhaps don't feel that quite so much, really, and they let themselves go a little bit. Uh, But uh, it's a pretty desperate existence for for them. There's another nice expression in Madagascar. They say, delight is not for the poor. Only in sleep do we resemble the rich. And I rather like that idea. It's it's this idea that really, if you're poor, you're stuck poor. You there's not much you can do about it, uh, and you just have to accept it as your lot. But there is comfort for all Malagasies in the idea that this life is really only temporary, and it's the next life that matters. So don't worry too much about this one. Uh, and that has an extraordinary effect on the way people behave, the way they do business. And so on. As I say, it's not now that matters, so don't worry about it. Is it sort of a, a behavioral code that came with Calvinism, or was this part of the indigenous culture? Like, are you 
are you going to go one way or the other if you depending on your behavior yeah i think probably that aspect of it belongs to their their indigenous beliefs this idea that it's the next life and the afterlife and the life of ancestors that matters there's another aspect to that and that is that in order to not offend the ancestors you must do what you think they would approve of and that makes malagasy's very conservative they don't like change because they worry that the change might offend the ancestors the dead are almost an aspect of social control yeah, absolutely yeah the, the the ancestors rule and they are um a very potent factor in life it is changing uh, a, a, there is a younger generation who are perhaps i hate to use the word dynamic because it sounds like a criticism of the older one i don't mean that at all but uh but who are prepared to change things and see and see technology and and, and developments uh, dominate their lives perhaps more than their parents did what are you seeing there what sort of changes are you seeing in the younger generation do they revere the ancestors as much or are they different looking for different ways oh you did mention um technology is being a knowledge like a knowledge economy yeah yeah so then there's a new generation of malagasys growing up who absolutely embraced technology and and this is really important i mean madagascar now has the best 4g in africa they malagasys have really embraced the internet uh, huge numbers of them i think it's 2 million are on facebook which considering the populations at 26.9 in a very very poor country that's a remarkable figure uh they embrace technology in, in other ways um so for example call centers data processing these are the new industries in antananarivo employing well maybe 50,000 people uh so they are selling their their computer literate skills as it were and and been quite successful at it it's it's quite an export really i thought it was quite interesting too you you said that they're uh, they've developed almost a niche market in consoling people online on customer service calls yeah that's they're, they're quite empathetic and, and that's this has become a specialty that's that's lovely i mean it says much for the charm of the malagasy people so that in france and morocco to french speaking countries they often outsource all their sort of complaints procedure and customer services to Madagascar. So if you've got a complaint about your Deliveroo in France or your Marie Claire subscription in France or Morocco, then you'd go online and then, and perhaps speak to a Malagasy. And Malagasy's are very charming. They like to find solutions. They like to make people happy. And so they're perfect at that job. And I love the idea that you know here's Malagasy Madagascar selling happiness smile by smile after hundreds of years of exporting misery in the form of slaves it's a it's a lovely change to see i say it's a really great story i wish somebody would outsource german customer service to madagascar it's this should be high on the list i think <laughs> talk about some exporting slaves and also um cattle rustling and and the sort of general lawlessness that exists on the fringes outside of the capital like quite often people would warn you not to go to these places the roads are dangerous you'll you'll be you'll be robbed inevitably on the roads don't go anywhere at night because of ghosts will get you if the robbers haven't but but what was your experience of traveling the countryside it wasn't so dire as that was it? it i never felt personally in danger although there is this low grade warfare that goes on all the time and and it needs a bit of explanation what's happening is there are 11 million uh, cattle in madagascar 
and a tradition of stealing cattle off your neighbour, which started relatively harmlessly hundreds of years ago, has developed into stealing cattle for cash. They go straight to the meat, meat plant, exchanged for cash, and this has become big business. And as big business gets involved, drugs get involved, and, and guns and so on. And I'm afraid now there is a, this low-grade warfare throughout the countryside, really. I think in, in almost all areas of Madagascar, but particularly the south and southwest, where these large gangs of um, rustlers or bandits, they're called Dahal there, uh, will roam the country, countryside stealing cattle. They're big gangs, maybe 80. They have sort of New York-type names uh, and, uh, you know, uh, outfits and, and lots of drugs associated with it. And the villagers, to meet the challenge that they present, arm themselves. And they will create these militia uh, in the area that I went to, particularly they were called Kaloon. And the Kaloon are armed with um, shotguns and spears, and they will patrol the countryside looking for the Dahal. And when they find each other, they just kill each other. There's no police involved. or The police force is far too small uh, and, I'm afraid, not sufficiently trusted. So the result is that this, this killing goes on all very quietly. No one ever knows about it, uh, but it's there. It doesn't involve tourists. They're not interested at the moment in robbing foreigners. They don't think we have anything of any great interest to them because it's cattle that they want. So is that sort of lack of state control um, the, the general condition of the, of the countryside outside the capital? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's no one can't blame the state, really. As I say, this is a really huge country, a thousand miles long. And the gendarme, the rural police force, uh, is only about 12,000 strong. And that's not nearly enough to patrol these vast areas. The gendarmes, in fairness to them, do what they can to, to suppress banditry in the countryside. And in, in the year that I was there, uh, 18 gendarmes were killed in shootouts with the Dahal. So they're brave and they do go for it. Uh, of, of course, there are some that are corrupt. There are some that are leasing out their weapons to the Dahal, which is only making the situation worse. But there are plenty of good gendarmes who are doing what they can to to suppress this awful, awful warfare. And it, sometimes the army gets thrown into the mix as well and, uh, and things get very bloody and there are human rights abuses performed by both sides, really. It's all very sad. I met a, an ex-soldier on this and he said, it's, it's horrible what we saw and did and to think we're doing this against our fellow Malagasy's. But I don't want to paint too bleak a picture. This is a very much occult war. You know, visitors won't really be aware of it or see it, uh, and it is dispersed over a vast area of land. The type of description that you give of the present seems to be reflected in the in the past as well in some of those regions, like this, the southwest and the and the south. Like among the among the remarkable characters that you you included in the book, the, the Sakalaba, uh, you say had a, a great pirate pseudo caliphate in the west that remained unknown to the outside world throughout its existence. Just it, you know, it rose and fell. This this sort of pirate kingdom without anybody in the outside world even knowing anything about it. It gives a sense of how cut off internally that some of these places are from from the island and the coast and and from the outside world. Yes, and I'm afraid probably the lawlessness has its origins in the slave trade. Now the slave trade's not quite as we understand it between, i.e., that between Europe and the Americas. It's much older than that. 
Uh, it goes back to Arab trading days. The first Malagasy slaves were seen in Zanzibar market in probably the 11th century, observed by a, a Chinese chronicler. Uh, but anyway, from then on until 1895, there has been a pretty florid slave trade in Madagascar. Uh, some of it external, uh, something like 100,000 Malagasis were exported to the Americas between uh, sort of 1680 and 1820, something like that. Uh, in 1680, half the slaves in the in the in Barbados were Malagasy. It gives you some idea of the scale of it. But it's also an internal trade. The mariner were were, were prodigious slavers, slaving their fellow Malagasies on the coast, who tended to be more Afro-Malagasy, unlike them and bringing them into, into the highlands. And I think during the 19th century, they brought about a million people to Antananarivo, and that reflects the makeup of the city today. Anyway, this is, all, all this harks back to the lawlessness that you do see in the West, and it really, it, it, it probably stems from this period of slave hunting and slaving out in these great wilderness areas. Well, it, it makes sense that something like this would would happen as well in a place that's so fractured geographically and so so difficult to impose any sort of sort of central control over. Like it's just a natural setting for for small communities to to well up. Some of which will be violent like this. Some of which will not. I'm afraid it is, and you know, I, I don't want to paint too negative a pic picture. This is a feature of Malagasy life. It's a sad feature of Malagasy life. But there is there is much to delight the traveller out in the countryside as well and much to admire I mean you know I, I really enjoyed my travels in the, the deep south of Malagasy, Madagascar for all its problems and admired people who were extraordinarily resourceful yeah, living in environs environments that you or I just wouldn't survive in for very long uh, and prodigious feats of walking just to to, to obtain water uh, remarkable art that they produce and uh, their ability to adapt and create what they need from this very harsh environment is uh, it, it is extraordinary and there's much to admire no i don't i don't mean to paint a, a bleak picture of the place at all it's, these are some of the uh, some of the historical you know, tribal groupings and, and bits of uh, turbulent but interesting history that that stood up for me in the, in the book but you also talked about places in the south where um, the, you you spent time on nature reserves and and you know hiked in some some fascinating geography as well. Yeah, no, I I just feel that you know having described the the negative side of Madagascar as I have in some detail, uh, I, I should also emphasise that I, I did really enjoy this trip and really admired people. That's that's the only reason I come back to that. But yeah, there's some wonderful places to see in the south these extraordinary maybe geological formations or reserves of remarkable creatures and you know you just don't see creatures like that elsewhere yeah you know, i mean can i just give you one one figure that i just find extraordinary that of the 107 170 species of mammals in madagascar only one uh, that is the bats found elsewhere in the world. Everything else is unique to Madagascar. They've got their own, for example, their own sort of hedgehog, 
the ten rag. I mean, it's not really a hedgehog. It, it's it, but I mean, to us, it looks like one, but it's it's not really related. Uh, and then uh, the only carnivore is something called the fouche, which is spelt as if it's fusa, but it's pronounced fouche. And this is a sort of half mongoose, half dog, supremely ugly, very very unpopular with the Madagascar Malagasies because it's rather vicious. Uh, but a, just a superb creature. You just you know, just don't see it anywhere else. Well, so much about the place, uh, it, it just seems so utterly unique, whether culturally or geographically or in terms of the, the sorts of creatures that you see there. I was trying to find a place that, that reflected, you know, the more, a more positive side of, of your journey. Not that you, I, I didn't get the sense that you were focusing on the negatives at all. It was more in a sense of, of sympathy with the people there and sort of this is their plight. And uh, there, there was a lot more, a lot of empathy in the book that comes across uh, throughout your journey. One of the places that stood out for me as sort of a, something that maybe people would be interested to go see was, was it related to La Reine? Yeah, a, lovely, a really lovely uh, hotel built by a Frenchman, actually. He's built two down there. And it's one of my favourite places in, in Madagascar. If you want to paint a picture, you're in, the, you're in an area called the Isalo Massif. And the Isalo Massif essentially is a... Uh, um, an inland sea, millions of years old, that filled with sand, solidified, and then with the flexing of the Earth's surface or plates, it sort of popped out, if you like, like, a, like an enormous sort of cake. And so this uh, enormous lump of sandstone, 100 kilometres long, sits on the surface uh, and is the Isala Massif. It's very steep sides. You can climb up the gullies. And you find yourself on top in this in this lost world of even stranger creatures and, and flora and fauna. Uh, it, it's just magical, the whole place. I, I can't enthuse about it enough. Anyway, around the bottom of this, um, this escarpment, uh, this Frenchman has built these two uh, really superb hotels. You, you just wonder how we managed to get the materials there, from the swimming pools to the sinks to everything else. And to stay there is not a joy. And to hike into the rock formations that surround it. Um, I, I can't think of a place that I've enjoyed more for a long time. It's sublime. Uh, this is the place where the Barra people have their aerial tombs. So they are able to climb it. It's hard enough to climb, uh, but it's also quite porous and you know, it has these bubble-like caves which they can put bodies in and so on. Uh, it's a beautiful colour, red co this red colour. Uh, with these sweeping golden grasslands between the red outcrops. It's a, a painter's paradise, really. It seems to be a, an island that attracts you know, remarkable experiences and quite remarkable people as well. One of the others that stands out from your book is, is the story of Robert Drury, the, uh, the shipwrecked sailor who washed up on the place in, in what, 1729, I think? Maybe, maybe you could fill us in a little bit on his story. Yeah, it was a little bit earlier than that, 1703. Robert Drury was a man who came from an area of London very near where I worked, just off Fleet Street. And his father was a publican. And at the age of 13, he sent him to India with some cloth and uh, with some things to sell. Um, Robert made it all the way to, in, to India, this teenager, bought a lot of cloth there and sailed back uh, on, a, uh, on an English ship with about 130 other people. Unfortunately, they were shipwrecked off the south coast of, of Madagascar. They managed to get ashore. Most of them survived. 
but were taken captive by the local king in the area. And Robert and some senior people on the ship uh, engineered an escape. Uh, and they managed to flee through the bush. Most of them, however, were killed when the king and his army followed them into the bush. And um, Robert was taken prisoner and kept captive on the island for the next 16 years. And he learned the language. Uh, he became proficient in Malagasy. He was uh, employed by the king to fight in the king's army and became a, a proficient warrior. He then escaped again and went to another tribe where again he fought in their army. So he became a, a, something of a Malagasy warrior. Eventually, he managed to link up with an English ship and got back to London, where everyone was a bit surprised to see him after 16 years away, uh, proficient now in spear throwing and Malagasy. Anyway, I, I managed to follow in his footsteps for quite a bit of his journey through the very deep south. Um, it was a bit of a struggle to get to the beach where the shipwreck happened, but I did. And I also got to the, the battlefield in St. Dunes where the crew, the 130, were killed and where Robert was taken prisoner. And actually, it really helped to go there to, to understand this story and to understand the hardship that he went through. I was actually quite surprised that I was able to find the places where these events happened. It is a, a truly remarkable story. And what's even more remarkable is that the sort of things that I saw when I was there in terms of landscapes and people probably weren't greatly different to the things that Robert saw in 1703 and which he wrote about, uh, as, as you said, in 1729. So, yeah, it's a great story. It really does feel like a little bit of history that, that comes alive when you get there. That's quite incredible to, to read about something like this and, and follow all the traces and then actually go on the spot and, and see, see the landscape where these events played out. I had, I had an experience like that with them. Um, did you ever read The Sheltering Desert? No, no, I didn't. Oh, it's, it's a fantastic book. It's um, Namibia. It's a story of uh, a geologist called two German geologists. One was called Henno Martin. He's the, the author of the book. And uh, when, when war broke out uh, in Europe, they were afraid that they would be interned by, by the British because it was, a, it was a German protectorate or whatever at the time. So they fled to the desert, these two geologists and their dog, and they had to, uh, had to find a way to survive out there. And then they lasted a couple of years, just living off the land, learning how to, to hunt and, and trap and they, they eventually they, they came back because one of them uh, got appendicitis quite bad and they, they were worried that he would die. So they turned themselves in and the British just said, like, where, where have you guys been? Like, nothing, nothing happened to them at all. They just yeah. took the guy to the hospital and that was it. There was no consequences or anything. But I found um, you, you, you can, it's a bit of a trek out to these canyons, but you can find the place where, where they had uh, built their shelters and, and you know, lived on the, on the run out there. It was really incredible. So your, your story reminded me quite quite a lot about that. That's a really great recommendation, Ryan. Thank you. I shall look out for that. That sounds really interesting. There, there are a few other characters uh, that I also write about who travelled in Malag Madagascar. I mean, remarkable feats of travel and explanation. I, perhaps I can just mention one, a chap called Edward Knight, who was mm. a journalist who wanted to cover the uh, French invasion in 1895 for the Times newspaper of London. 
And the French wouldn't let him land, so he landed illegally in the south and walked the best bit of 500 miles just to get to the battlefields that he wanted to cover. And this walk was a remarkable feat of uh, exploration done with the most rudimentary maps. He had a revolver. He hired some guides along the way. But apart from that, he went through very dangerous territory in terms of malaria and banditry and so on. And nowadays, when I see um, explorers and travellers boasting about their remarkable feats of exploration in Madagascar, I always think, you don't know the half of it. You don't know what people have already done 100 years before you with much more rudimentary equipment and no prospect of rescue. And it does make their boasts seem rather shallow, I must say. It should put journalists to shame as well. You look the length that a man like that went to to get a story. Yeah, absolutely. It's just remarkable on any number of levels. Um, Just to finish the story, actually, funnily enough, one of the things I did in lockdown was visit a cemetery where I I thought he was buried and I did find his tomb. And and it's it's very near here, only a couple of miles from where I live. And it's rather sad that it's collapsed. I think somebody needs to put some money together and and restore Edward Knight's tomb because I just think he's the most fantastic traveller, journalist and explorer. That's quite an incredible story. Did Robert Drury end up in in England as well? Yeah, he did. He did. And he was buried in St. Clement Dane's church and or, or rather in their churchyard. The churchyard was was a bit of a pestilent place actually it was pretty revolting 150,000 corpses buried in a tiny area and it was eventually sold and bought by the London School of Economics so the LSE's library now sits on the graveyard where Robert Drury is buried I don't know if that's a comforting thought to LSE students or not really <laughs> the other remarkable thing about him was that he actually went back to Madagascar like after he had escaped to to England, he, he got signed up on another boat, didn't he, and, and showed up again. Yeah, he did, Ryan. That's absolutely right. He he <laughs> he was found himself a bit of a loose end when he got back to London. I think work was very difficult in the 1720s for a man who didn't have any other skills apart from a bit of trading, sp- throwing spears, and a knowledge, a little bit of knowledge of seafaring. And so he decided to go back to sea, and he joined a slaving ship and was a slaver, went back to Madagascar to buy slaves. It's rather sad that despite his own experience, he still thought slaving was an acceptable way of living, but that was the time, and that's what people did. I think it probably is fair to say that Robert uh, Drury was not a, a man overflowing with the milk of human kindness. He wasn't a, a particularly likeable person. He's admirable for his amazing ability to survive, but he wasn't a particularly humane individual, so he wouldn't necessarily have seen the horrible side of slavery. I just don't think it occurred to him, really. During colonial times, if I remember right, you said the British stuck to more or less buying loyalty, making allies with various rulers and trading, whereas when the French finally arrived in, I think it was the 1890s, they they attempted to invade the island and they did succeed after something like three quarters of people died of malaria, blackwater fever. Very few of them were, were, were killed in actual fighting. Is that right? Yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable story. But the, the French had tried many times to settle Madagascar 
and all of their attempts had either ended in butchery, the, the locals had butchered them, or in disease, and that was far more common. The British had made attempts in the 1640s to settle and had all succumbed to disease, and that was really pretty much the last of their attempts. What the British were far more interested in was stopping the French settling it. So they formed alliances with the Malagasy kings, the, the, the foremost of which was in 1817. And the treaty signed by the British and the Malagasy still adorns the presidential office, apparently, in Antananarivo. They're very proud of this enduring treaty. And the British really were interested in keeping the French out because Madagascar threatened the route to India. But by 1895, that was no longer so important because of the Suez Canal. And so the British were happy to allow the French to colonise Madagascar if that's what they wanted to do. And they did. And they led this uh, somewhat foolhardy campaign in that they put huge resources into landing 400 uh, miles from Antananarivo. And then they tried to march over land, building a road as they went. Now, the British had warned them, this is not the way to fight in Madagascar, if that's what you want to do, because you'll just be defeated by disease. But the French were having none of it. And they set off marching across land, building this road. And as you say, most of them perished. So of their invading force of 18,000, well over 9,000 died of blackwater fever and malaria. Only 25 soldiers actually died in combat during the whole campaign. So they could have done it differently with much uh, less loss of life, but, um, but they didn't. And there are cemeteries all the way along that road, most of them now derelict. And you, you followed the invasion route as well in your travels, right? Yeah, so I retraced their steps, stopping at various places where battles had been fought, where the French had suffered their losses. Uh, the, the fighting was pretty cursory because the Malagasy's realised they were outgunned, so they tended to uh, move from their positions as soon as the French appeared. Uh, so the combat wasn't exactly um, it wasn't exactly bloody, but they but the march itself was a disaster, a total disaster. What do you think was the lasting influence of the French? Is it just surface things like street names and a taste for bread, or, or <laughs> did, did any of their influence survive to today? It, it it did to some extent. I mean, the French genuinely believed that they were there to bring light and civilization, la mission civilatrice. And a lot of good Frenchmen genuinely thought that that's what colonialism would bring to the island. And so they introduced a legal system, education, one of the best medical schools in Africa. Uh, They did quite a lot of building uh, of roads. They built two two major railways, only one of which uh, functions all the time. The other one sort of half functions. But the, the problem for France and its colonialism, it was to anti-colonialists, it all went on far too long, it should never have happened. But to those who support what the French were trying to do, they just didn't have the time or the resources. They were only there for 65 years. And that's not enough to make a huge impression on, on Madagascar. They've left a language, at least the language of government is still partially French. And they've left a bit of infrastructure They've left a few habits as well, and that's particularly amongst the rich, a taste for a certain type of clothing and a certain type of food, that once you leave the major cities, 
most Malagasy's will be unaware of French influence or language. It's um, it's a veneer. It's very superficial, I'm afraid. And then after the colonial phase, the the island went through a, a terrible 15 year experiment with communism, where where they were the, the friend of the USSR and, and North Korea, Libya, which which resulted in in a decline in productivity and living conditions and a sort of vast uglification, uh, graying of the society, if you will, the sort of, the sort of thing that communism seems to to lie, leave in its wake everywhere. What what is the lasting impression of of that period, if any? Yeah, I'm afraid it's been a, it was a very sad period where the economy was allowed to collapse. There were certain prestige projects, um, military and uh, and some rather useless engineering projects, which the socialist style government uh, invested in. And the the growth during that period was was often negligible, despite the fact that the population grew uh, throughout, you know, you know, there should have been growth there, and there just wasn't. It was a disaster, and the legacy of all of that is that we're still left with very turbulent politics uh, even today. There have been several coups since uh, 2000, uh, seizures of power, and uh, even last week there was an attempt to assassinate the president. At least that's what he alleges, and he's been arresting people. I, I saw that in the news yesterday. Yeah, an attempt to kill him and, and the. Um... Well, some some generals and police officers were involved or arrested. That's so. It still seems like like your your story ends on uh, on a note of unrest where there's you witnessed a riot and live ammunition being fired at the crowd, and it seems that those turbulent periods have continued. The riot that you talk about was in April 2018, and it it was part of this ongoing row, if you like, between the two great factions of Malagasy politics. And the riot itself is worth just mentioning it because the riot itself came about because the then president said that he wanted to change the constitution and he wanted to raise the age for eligible presidential candidates to 45. And he did that because that wiped out his major competitor, who was 44. He, he also introduced a second rule to say you had to have been in the country for the last, residence in the country for the last six months. And that wiped out his other competitor, who he had exiled for the last nine months. Well, of course, this was totally unfair. Nobody could see that. So the people of Tanner rose uh, in demonstration. He said, you can't. If you demonstrate, I'll send the army in. The mayor said, no, no, this demonstration is legal. So there was, there was doubtful legality. Anyway, the day pretty soon turned into something like medieval warfare. It was one of the most remarkable and terrifying days of my life to see this all unfold in front of me uh, and then to wander down when the police and army fled having opened fire with live rounds then to wander down into the city centre and to find it deserted the army having fled and then the demonstrators uh, appeared and it was like a scene from Les Mis it, it was just it was very exhilarating that the people had won the day and and rightly so because it was all uh, all illegal this this shooting and so on so i did feel that the right side won on that particular day uh it was so exhilarating in that sense but also terrifying uh, you know a day i'll never forget what do you think the future holds for madagascar 
they really have to try and stabilize the the politics if they can it it it's a no mean feat and there are no doubt very good people working on that i certainly came across people working in human rights there who were trying to shore up civil society and so on but you know these these factions have, are are very deep rooted and there's also a a racial element to it so the afro malagasies as opposed to the indonesian malagasies are have a gap between them so the people on the coast tend to vote one way and the people in tana tend to vote another and that it, it's pretty difficult to reconcile the two and it it will be difficult always to do so so they're going to have to get over that problem but uh if the economy manages to survive and thrive in the years to come then perhaps the politics will follow i'm optimistic for for the economics of the country i think the malagasies have a real future uh the other thing on the horizon is population explosion so the as i say the population at the moment is about 26.9 million but within a generation or so it's predicted it will be 130 million so that presents real challenges but also opportunities in expanding population will bring with it uh, all sorts of new ideas and in, in industry and so on and development well i know we've talked a lot about some the turbulent history and, and the, the current um, unrest in addition to some of the magical elements of the of the country but the one thing that really stood out is uh, a quote here i can if i can read it during during these last few weeks i was often surprised by people's capacity for joy i began to realize that almost everyone i knew was deep down inexplicably content and something something that your friend arrow had said um, there's more to this place than the things we don't have there seemed to be a great optimism uh, within the culture as well and, and a great sort of love of life there yeah there is so ryan despite all the difficulties we talked about some of them Malagasies are very very resilient people. They are at heart very cheerful, shored up perhaps by their their great faith. Uh but there's also something in the character of Malagasies that's very enjoyable. It's very they're very difficult to understand. I can't pretend for a moment that for an outsider it would be easy to live there. I think it's a would be a very challenging place culturally to live in. but to visit it's an absolute joy and um i made people made friends with people at least i considered them to be friends and i hope i'll stay in touch with them for many years since we may not entirely understand each other thanks to the cultural differences uh, but there is real pleasure in that friendship and i for my own part i can't wait to go back there and i hope to return there uh, many times over over the coming years it's uh, and i say that in common with a lot of other people who who know this country well they develop a real loyalty to it it's a a, a truly magical place the, the book is an absolute joy to read as well the, the gardens of mars it's, it's definitely one of my top books for the year i i do a blog a blog post at the, at the end of each year with you know my best reads uh, of the previous year and then i read a lot of books maybe 100 a year and this is this is right up there i really enjoy the Well Ryan that's that's really kind of you to say that thank you I I I don't take that lightly that's uh, that's very generous of you thank you Could I ask you one one more question before we wrap up I want to I want to draw attention to some of your other your other work as well Of course uh, of course 
one of the things that I found so interesting about your work is like when, when most people look at a map of South America, for example, they'll say, oh, why don't we go to Rio or Buenos Aires or, or Patagonia? But my eye is drawn to those, those three tiny countries at the top of the map. You know, I, I see that up there and I think, what is, what is going on there? What's this all about? Nobody talks about these places. But these, these are the places that you seem to specialize in writing about. The Guyanas, Paraguay, um, Sri Lanka, Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, what is it that attracts you to such places? I suppose there are several things, really. One is that they are a bit unknown and therefore intriguing, and I can't resist that challenge. And I think the other thing that they have in common, the Guyanas, Paraguay and Madagascar, is that they, they are, in a sense, quite self-contained. These countries have their own history. It's different to their neighbours, very different in, in all of those cases. Uh, and therefore, their history doesn't bleed into their neighbours. And I feel that I can immerse myself in their history without feeling that I have to have a deep understanding of the history of the surrounding countries as well. So it is manageable. I can spend three years or so researching the country before I go there and feel that I've got a pretty good grip on, on the history before I arrive. So in one sense, I'm making the task easier for myself. But yeah, I think the main reason probably is that they're intriguing, these places. That makes me think of something you said in an interview. I don't remember where I saw it, but you said that both Paraguay and Newfoundland developed eccentricities through isolation. Yes, that's right. Paraguay has this lovely expression, or at least one of their authors came up. It's an island surrounded by land. And it is. It's it's very insular. You know, you 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 couldn't really get there until railways arrived, other than by river. And it was an it was something like a ninety day trip from Buenos Aires uh, up river because you know against currents and so on. It was pretty hard work. Um, so Paraguay grew up in its own way, just like Madagascar. Uh, perhaps of all my books, Sri Lanka is the odd one out in the sense that. Sri Lanka is much more linked to its neighbours, in particular India. But the story I was telling there was slightly different anyway. It was more to do with the, particularly the civil war and the relationship that has to the people who live around me in this particular part of London where I live. I'm glad you're out there writing about these types of places because they're the ones that fascinate me. So what's, what's next for you? I have some plans and I've been researching a book for a little while now, but I've just had to abandon it because... It involved a Mediterranean, a small Mediterranean country. And it, the book was focused on a murder that happened in the, in the 90s, an assassination. And by telling the story of that assassination, you tell the story of this little country. But unfortunately, I was dependent on the cooperation of the widow of the man who was killed. And she has said at the moment that she doesn't want to cooperate. She, she, I think she's frightened of the, the dark forces in the wings and therefore feels that she can't cooperate. And without her cooperation, my, mm. my project doesn't go ahead and therefore my six months of work, I'm afraid, is wasted. But, you know, that's the, that's the game, isn't it, really? That's, that's what happens. You know, if you want to do these things, you have to accept those risks. So at the moment, that's uh, that's on hold, I'm afraid, and uh, I'm sort of rather regrouping, <laughs> thinking about various other projects. But who knows? Looking forward to it, whatever you uh, whatever you come up with next, always a delight to read. 
Well, Ryan, that's really kind of you. Thank you very much. It's been a it's been a real pleasure chatting to you. And uh, I'd love to hear more about your adventures in Berlin at some stage. Well, Brian, if you're ever down this way, look me look me up for a beer. I'll be be happy to uh, to raise a glass with you. Oh, that's great. We have we have great family connections with Berlin because my father did his national service there, and uh, he was a doctor with the army. Uh, British Army, obviously, and looked after uh, the Nazi war criminals that spanned our prison. Wow! So he's still and he's still alive. He's ninety-four and has a very good recollection of the six surviving senior Nazis. There, uh, it's a it's an interesting story. And he loved Berlin uh, in nineteen fifty-one, fifty-two. But then both my brothers went back there with the army, and I've been there several times. So we're very fond of Berlin. You're lucky to live there. I, I live quite close to Spandau now. Actually, we just uh, we just moved across town from Kreuzberg in in December, so very close to uh, to where the prison would have been. He must have some incredible story. Yeah, it, it is. A, it's a remarkable story. I understand the prison has now been knocked down. It's now a shopping mall, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no trace of it anymore. No, I think it was knocked down literally the day that Hess died in mm-hmm. 1989. Right. Uh, the British barracks is still next door. It may no longer be British. It may have been returned to the German army. I don't know. But I've certainly stayed there. Uh, and I remember the prison very well. My father took pr- photographs of it in 1951, which I've still got. And I took pictures of it in, I don't know, 80, 86, I think, three years before it was knocked down. Mm. It's a f- fascinating place. I mean, a- and a fascinating chapter in our history. Anyway, enjoy Berlin. Yeah, so thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure talking to you. Great. And you, Ron. Lovely. Nice to talk to you. Talk again soon, I hope. All right. Good night. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanbernard.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated. 